Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thanks for joining me today. Autumn baseball in America finishes with the Fall Classic, the World Series. This year, a Chicago and an Ohio team battle it out in epic fashion for the Commissioner's Trophy, which got me thinking I should do a podcast episode about another Chicago and Ohio team in the World Series, but one that goes all the way back to 1919. The Black Sox scandal, of course. And who was the main fixer of the Black Sox scandal? Arnold Rothstein. My guest today is David Petruja, a best-selling author of a slew of excellent books, including 1932, The Rise of Hitler and FDR, 1920, The Year of Six Presidents, and 1948, Harry Truman's Improbable Victory and the Year That Transformed America. He's a noted presidential scholar and historian. However, no presidents today. Instead, we're going to be talking about his book, Rothstein, The Life, Times, and Murder of the Criminal Genius Who Fixed the 1919 World Series. A perfect topic for our podcast, of course. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, glad to be here. So my knowledge of Arnold Rothstein, I'll admit, has been limited mostly to the Black Sox scandal, a lot of my listeners, I'm sure, are fans of Boardwalk Empire, and he was portrayed in the series as a mentor to Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano, but your book really opened my eyes. Arnold Rothstein had his hands in, in pretty much every racket in New York City in the 1920s, and I can't wait to talk about this with you. Let me start by asking you, you're a presidential historian, and Arnold Rothstein is about as far from presidential as a person can get. What is it about him that prompted you to write this book? Well, I became a, well, I started out as a presidential historian as a as a precocious little child. 
but then took several detours. And it was only after writing Rothstein that I, I moved into the presidential history uh, game in terms of, of writing these big books on 1920 and 60 and 48 and 1932. What I had been doing previously to writing Rothstein was being a baseball historian. And I faced the question because uh, people said, well, you wanted to write a book on the Black Sox. You wanted to write a book on the uh, uh, baseball or something of that nature. And it was no. I wanted to write a book on New York City in the 1920s. And I was faced with a couple of questions. One of which was which part of New York City in the 20s would I focus on? Would it be the stock market, the culture, the jazz, the nightclubs, Broadway? Even motion pictures were being made in the city at that point. Um, the gangsterism, the tr trade union wars, the politics. So what do I take and, and how do I choose that? And the other thing was how do I convince a publisher to let this uh, baseball writer write this book. And it occurred to me, or it happened to me, I picked up a book in a dollar box of books in the lobby of the Albany, New York Public Library, and it was the biography of Mayor James J. Walker. And Rothstein kept showing up over and over and over again. And I thought this could be the bridge. And it, I was concerned whether I would be able to fill in the blanks beyond the Black Sox, whether I would have enough material. And boy, was I wrong on that. Because even though deceased, murdered gangsters do not leave, deposit their state papers in uh, some university library, and in fact, most of Rothstein's papers were destroyed, uh, there was enough about him to just boggle my mind as to everything he was involved in. Um, so that's how we came to doing, to doing Arnold Rothstein. So could you describe to us Arnold Rothstein? I mean, if I was in New York City in 1925 and needed a loan, where would I find him? How would I recognize him? And, and how would he greet me, do you think? You might greet him at his office on West 57th Street near to Carnegie Hall, a very respectable area. He's not down on the Lower East Side. He's never been a Lower East Side sort of hoodlum. He's a money man and a usurer and a fellow who bankrolls things. It, he might be able to say legitimately that he did not fix the World Series. But he provided all the money to do that. He knew uh, what was going to happen, and he profited from that, both in terms of collecting on the loans and certainly on making bets his own. Uh, so he was able to do that. You might find him at Lindy's, which was a delicatessen in the Times Square area, which was frequented by show business people, songwriters, newspaper men like Damon Runyon. And that's how uh, it is alleged that Arnold Rothstein is the model for Nathan Detroit in Damon Runyon's Guys and Dolls. And he is the model for Meyer Wolfsheim in um, F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. So he's known the people in the 1920s, um, not only for the, the World Series fix, but for being in the middle of everything. When he 
dies in 1928. His obituaries don't headline man who fixed the 1919 World Series or alleged to fix the 1919 World Series because he's so much bigger than that and so much more a part of the fabric of the dark side of New York City life. Describe him physically, if you would. Someone meeting him for the first time, what, what would they remember about him? The way he looked, acted, etc. He's for the time, could be said to be of an average build, maybe a little on the short side, about 5'7", in middle age, and he doesn't get much beyond middle age. He he starts to put on a little weight. He's a little paunchy, uh, fleshes out, but not really a heavy person. He is very quick of movement and quick of reaction, both physically and mentally. He can size things up very quickly uh, in his mind. He also is cat-like in his in his physical moves. He has false teeth. Uh, he's noted for he's a person of of some good habits. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't drink. Uh, but he's a great imbiber of milk and of cakes and sweets. Uh, so his teeth go very early on in life, and so he's he's got a set of, of false choppers, um, and he's a person who keeps very irregular hours for regular people, but probably regular hours for irregular people of Broadway people and gamblers. So he's up all uh, night and sleeping much through uh, completely through the mornings and even into late after uh, mid afternoon. I came across the remnants of testimony where he was actually on the stand. And in that sequence of dialogue between him and his interrogator, you sense that even though he's smart and can be charming, as people say, that there's a really nasty, smart Alex streak to him. And you can see that when he meets his end, maybe that someone finally was mad enough and drunk enough just to plug him because he wised off at just exactly the worst possible moment. <laughs> so, so you go into his background in your book and some pretty fascinating information about his relationship, specifically with his mother. Can you talk about this and how you think this relationship with, with his mom influenced him growing up. Very early on, he's, he's acting weird. He's reclusive. He's hanging around in closets and basements and, and hiding out. But he is phenomenally jealous of his uh, older brother, uh, Bertram, known as Harry. And Bertram is the, the good child, the good son. His father, Arnold's father, is very, very religious and devout. He's known as Abraham the Just. Bertram, or Harry, is going to become a rabbi. He's, he's a good kid. Arnold is not. And Arnold resents the relationship that Harry has with their mother. And at the age of three, uh, Abraham Rothstein, the father, discovers Arnold 
poised over his older brother's bed as he sleeps uh, with a knife. And it's like, what are you doing? He says, I hate Harry. I hate him. Hate him. And two years later, when the mother goes back to San Francisco to visit her family, she takes Harry with him and leaves Arnold behind, which further traumatizes him. He's very, he's smart. He's smart as a whip, but he's really bad at school and is, is a high school dropout at uh, East Harlem uh, Boys High School and then goes pretty much on the road and is in many ways uh, alienated from his parents and, and his family. Not entirely. Uh, with his younger brothers, he has, he has some good relationships, but uh, it is aggravated also because of his mixed marriage with his uh, wife, who is uh, half Irish, half Jewish, and uh, pretty much fully Catholic under the circumstances, or one who refuses to convert. And this drives a further wedge between Arnold and his father, but not a total wedge. Later on, uh, he will bail his father out. He will give uh, give him some financial aid. So it's 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 a complex relationship, but it's not a good one. And the marriage you're referring to is to a woman named Carolyn Green, and she, she's a showgirl. Is that right? That's right. Her autobiography must be, which is. Very hard to get, actually. I, I had to get a copy from a, a college in Florida, okay? Uh, but, but very informative. In some ways, it has to be taken with a grain of salt. She says she's of a middle-class background, and um, no. <laughs> Her father was a butcher in Hell's Kitchen. I've tracked down the, the, the places where, where the family lived when she was growing up, and it's, it's not townhouse. It's not Gramercy Park uh, townhouse. It's Hell's Kitchen tenement, really. And, but she becomes a showgirl. She's a part of the, of the chorus line. The chorus lines were not big in these shows. It might be six or eight girls. And, and she's making a living at that. It's pretty much love at first sight, it seems to be. He sets his sight, uh, sights upon her very early on. The first time they, they, they meet, courts her. Uh, she says she's she's rather naive about what he does for a living, uh, thinking that, um, oh, he's a sportsman. He must be hunting and fishing or something. Well, I don't know if we can believe that or not. Um, in fact, uh, she varnishes their relationship in Saratoga. Uh, you know, she's like a good girl just sort of visiting and chaperoned when he goes up to the track and they end up uh, married. This is not exactly the case. Um there are a lot of very wealthy guys marrying showgirls at that time. You know, it's, it's sort of like in the, in the 1940s and 50s movies. And he also takes up with showgirls and models for the rest of his life. Uh, he's married for the rest of his life, but he has a string of, of mistresses. And those relationships are, are not always happy either. He tends to keep her in the gilded cage. And she chafes at that. He does allow her to take at least three trips to Europe. Uh, so he does let her out occasionally. But he does not want her moving about when he's uh, uh, at home uh, resting. Uh, it's a very, very unhappy relationship. And at the time of his death, uh, they are engaged in getting a divorce. And prior to that, they had tried to make the marriage work. 
by going to a psychologist, which is, I think, how we know some of the of the details of his early childhood and his angst with his with his siblings. It's a bit like uh, the Jewish 1920s version of The Sopranos. Interesting. So, so he meets her when he's 27. But I want to go back before this a little. Let's talk about Arnold Rothstein as a young man trying to establish himself in New York. Can you talk about his early years and how he began to gain experience in the criminal world? Well, it's gambling, 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 and more gambling. And I go into some detail in the book as to how big gambling was back then. Um, And it, it goes all the way from the back rooms of grocery stores and bars all the way up to these fabulous casinos. I mean, we don't see the rich gambling so much now. They don't own racehorses and stables. I mean, they own condominiums all over the world and these big houses and they, they go to the Hamptons. But they would go more to the track then. And, and so it was a badge of wealth and prestige. And you could get to mingle with these people if you were some sort of, of connected gambler, if you were running um, poker games on the sly or uh, gambling houses uh, in the Times Square area or in Saratoga. He has a gambling house in Saratoga uh, a bit later in the story uh, called The Brook, which is quite fashionable. But he works his way up from just being a sucker in these bets uh, to quickly learning uh, the ropes and how to entice other suckers. And he also realizes uh, the value of lending money out to other desperate people. And if you can accumulate a bankroll and and the first, well, not the first bank, uh, biography of him, but there's a 1959 uh, biography called The Big Bankroll, which is he would carry these huge amount of, amounts of money around with him and loan them out at exorbitant rates. And this made him um, really a bigger part of this Times Square uh, sporting life than he uh, any small type type of gambler would normally be. And there's a connection. There's a connection between sporting figures like John McGraw, theatrical people, gamblers, politicians like Tammany Hall. All these circles are so interconnected at that point. And one of the great skills of Rothstein is to be the middleman between all of them and more. Uh, to be the connection between all of those groups and also the Lower East Side hoodlums, between those guys also and the guys who are going into rum running and labor racketeering and later on into drug smuggling. Um, one, a newspaper man uh, describes him as his great skill was being, or his great interest was not only money and gambling, but being a busybody. Okay. And so he is the glue that connects all of these disparate elements of Jazz Age New York. And very early on, he learned never to gamble unless things were rigged in his favor, right? Right, or at least that the odds really favor him. I mean, everything 
is not necessarily to be rigged, but certainly you want to make the odds work for you as much as you can. And also that's an intellectual attitude. You can realize that, but then there's the, the, the bug, the disease of gambling where you can't help yourself. And you, you do, he will win. I mean, in one horse race, I think it's at Aqueduct, he wins $950,000. It's not unusual for him to win uh, $300,000 in, in a race, but he can also lose $300,000 or $120,000 in single races. And that's, I mean, think of what a dollar was worth back then. These are incredible sums. And, and he loses them, and they say he can do it without, you know, batting an eyelash. Well, he might not bat the eyelash, but, you know, his stomach was turning and churning, having to give up that amount of cash. And at the end, his luck starts to turn. You know, like they say when you're hot, you're hot. and When you're not, you're not. So he has this phenomenal run of luck and good judgment. But towards the end of his life, he starts taking those big losses at the track. His investments uh, are not good. He loses in, in a very high stakes poker game, which I think we'll discuss probably later on. And, and I have to wonder, I have to wonder because I was going through the chronology of his life in preparation for this interview again. And you see over and over and over again his connection in the late 1920s to people involved in the drug traffic. And even though he was so abstemious in regard to alcohol, you know, his judgment becomes so clouded at the end, whether he was fooling around with this stuff or not. Nobody ever says this. There's no evidence of it. But, you know, you just have to wonder if if playing with fire, you know, whether he starts to sample the stuff and that's why his judgment clouds or whether his luck just runs out. We will be right back. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. 
Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned. So let's go back to November 18th, 1909 to an event that really creates his larger-than-life reputation in New York City. He plays a marathon game of pool with a man named Jack Conaway. Can you talk about that game? Yeah. Rothstein had fallen in with a group of real bon vivants, uh, wits, largely newspaper people. It was a precursor of the Algonquin Circle. Everyone knows what the Algonquin Circle is. And, you know, Dorothy Parker and George Kaufman and people like that and sitting around at lunch and, you know, just amusing themselves and being very smart, talented people. But there's this other group uh, around 1909 that Rothstein falls in with. And at one point, you know, as I said, he's he could be sharp and cutting and rather unpleasant at times. And they determine to trim him, to trim his sales and his ego and his bankroll by suckering him into a high-stakes billiard game at John McGraw. John McGraw is the legendary manager of the New York Giants. He's the biggest thing in sports before Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb, really. He'd been a great ball player with the Baltimore Orioles in the 1890s. Tough, tough guy. And he's connected with Rothstein. Rothstein has a piece of his pool hall by that time. He's doing well enough. But Rothstein and Conaway get into this match. And he has no idea how good Conaway is. But they play, I think, for 32 hours straight. And Rothstein eventually wins several thousand dollars on this. His, his alleged friends from this literary or uh, convivial circle who had tried to trim him lose tens of thousands of dollars and uh, uh, there may or may not be have been a rematch in Philadelphia but this makes the newspapers this makes the newspapers and elevates him uh, to being an even bigger man on the on the emerging great white way of Broadway which is moving up from Herald Square at that point into Times Square where he will have at, already at this point he has a gambling house on West 46th Street Eventually, he helps uh, invent the, you know, the oldest permanent floating crap game in New York. But before things get too hot for permanent sites, there are permanent sites and often very, very opulent, elegant, but still illegal gambling houses in, in New York City, largely in, in the mid 40s, in the Midtown area, uh, as we know it today. So you were talking about his, his good string of luck for most of his working life. He won more than he lost. Well, he has to, he has to uh, pawn his wife's uh, engagement ring right after they're married. 
and that's and and that pool hall that pool game is right after they're married so he has he has his ups and downs and if if he takes a big hit in the gambling house or on a single bet he's still playing it fairly close to the vest and he has to borrow two thousand dollars from his father-in-law to open that first uh, gambling house and he has to do it with with uh with a partner so he, he's not big enough to do these things on his own at this point uh it's incremental but once he's up and rolling with those gambling houses and his connections with Tammany and the police, I mean, within a few years, he's got big time money. And what I mean by in a few years, I mean in the teens, in the 19 teens, so that by about 1914 or so, he's able to open a gambling house in partnership with some other people on Long Island when the gambling houses have to move out of Manhattan into Long Island, and he's a he's a player in that. He's part of a of owning a racetrack in uh, Maryland, Hard to Grace, in the 19 teens, and you know that's why by 1919, you know we're talking about 1909. From 1909 to 1919, he goes from a guy who's you know always on the verge of getting wiped out to the guy who can bankroll the World Series, you know. When you're bankrolling the fixing of the World Series, now when you're doing that, you've got to have a huge amount of money because you've got to put up maybe $100,000 to bribe the players. But once you bribe the players, well, what's the point of that? You've also got to have a reserve of cash to bet money on it. Otherwise, the exercise is pointless, absolutely pointless. And he's got that amount of dough and also a network of betting agents because all of a sudden say you come in and say well i'd like to bet two hundred thousand dollars on the chicago white Sox, okay uh or the cincinnati reds and people say whoa whoa does this guy know something same thing which happens with the horse races you just can't do this yourself. You're going to crash the odds. You're going to make people suspect you even more than they do suspect him because, you know, he has that reputation of being a sure thing gambler. So he has to have this network of stooges. He has to have bodyguards. He has to have bookkeepers. He has this whole army of people working for him, most of whom are, are not the thugs we think of like hired killers. He, in that sense, he's not a gangster like a Luciano or a Dutch Schultz or like a gunman. He is, is that guy in the well-tailored suits who does not speak in D's, Dems, and Do's, and who can mix between various elements of society. So part of Rothstein's success was cozying up to Tammany Hall, as you mentioned before, and especially Big Tim Sullivan, who basically ran the Bowery. Can you talk about Big Tim Sullivan who he was, and his relationship to Rothstein. Big Tim Sullivan is a fascinating individual. He is not the boss of Tam- First off, I think we might want to explain for uh, listeners what Tammany is. Uh, Tammany is, is, not the, is the Democratic County Committee and organization. It's a, it's a club, uh, really, uh, with, which, with subsidiary clubhouses all throughout Manhattan. It's not the Brooklyn organization, but it, it's it's centered in Manhattan. And Manhattan 
is where the money is. It's where Wall Street is. It's where all the nightclubs is, et cetera, et cetera. And it's where the theaters are and, and the, the garment district. So they control all of that. And Sullivan is not the boss of Tammany. He just controls that very vice-ridden area of the Bowery, as you indicated, and of the larger Lower East Side. He starts out as, as a newsboy on the streets, and he works his way up to become a, a ward leader, a district leader of Tammany. He's a state senator. At some point, he's a congressman. He's not interested in being a uh, in Congress. It, it, it has nothing to do with his business dealings. And his business dealings are quite varied, aside from politics. He is involved in a reasonably substantial vaudeville chain uh, with a couple guys named the Considine Brothers. Oddly enough, their theaters are not near Manhattan, but they're on the uh, northwest uh, region of the country, you know, Oregon, Washington State. He has uh, hotels, and I think he has a theater. Really very, very. When he is in Congress, he's not interested in legislation, but he is the pinochle champion of Congress. After a while, uh, he's also involved, it appears, in, in protection of the prostitution region, uh, racket in his area, and he suffers from syphilis towards the end. He becomes so unstable that um, it is determined by his associates that it is not good to run him for the state Senate anymore. So instead, it is safe, however they deem it, for him to return to Congress, which makes not a lot of sense. But a lot of the stuff going on back then doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Um, and he is involved very, very heavily with Arnold Rothstein, likes him and likes uh, another gambler by the name of Herman Rosenthal even more, and thereby hangs a tale. Yes, I'd, I'd love it if you could tell that story. Herman Rosenthal was known as Beansy Rosenthal. Beansy and Arnold are both operating those ga- open, well, sort of wide open, but still illegal gambling houses in the West 40s in the era, in a time around 1910, 1912. And the police, we haven't talked too much about the police, but they are spectacularly corrupt at that point. And one of the most corrupt is a fellow named Lieutenant Charles Becker. And not only is he corrupt, he's incredibly arrogant and brutal. Why he rose as far as he did in the organization, I don't know, because he was just plain troubled. Why any respectable crook would 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 get too near this guy i don't know because he was a, a real keg of dynamite uh getting into one scrape after another but steadily rising to where he controls the vice in that area and he's shaking down all the gambling houses and everything else he can in the area including the gambling house run by herman rosenthal rosenthal has been very close to big tim sullivan and he he says he thinks this is going to buy him protection from from Becker, but it doesn't. And 
Becker wrecks his gambling house and really puts the muscle on him. And Rosenthal is too stupid to realize that he does not have this level of protection. And he goes to the newspapers. Ironically, he goes to the New York World, whose editor is one Herbert Bayard Swope, who becomes very, very big in national democratic politics uh, later on. He's, he's sort of like a wise man. Uh, but he, before he is that, and before he is editor of the New York World, he is Arnold Rothstein's best man at Rothstein's Saratoga wedding. So quite a varied uh, career on Mr. Swope's part. But Swope is now publishing Rosenthal's tale of these shakedowns. And Becker is completely enraged and determines that he is going to kill Rosenthal. And not only is he going to do it, but he's going to do it in a way which is going to send a message to anyone else who thinks they're going to, to blab to the district attorney. And there's a Republican district attorney in Manhattan at that time, a very rare occurrence, or to the newspapers. Rosenthal is dining alone one night after he's been warned by Arnold Rothstein to keep his mouth shut and to get out of town, to take $500 and there's more money if you need it, but just get the hell out of town and shut up, Beansy. And Beansy is too stupid to do it. Although uh, a little while after that, he says, well, can I still take up that offer? offer? And Arnold said, it's too late. So Rosenthal goes to the Hotel Metropole on 30 on 43rd Street, which oddly enough is owned by Big Tim Sullivan and the Considine brothers, is summoned out to the sidewalk past one o'clock in the morning and a car drives back. This is the first drive by homicide in American history. There's about four or five gunmen in the car and they just pretty much blow his head off. There are policemen all over the area. None of them gets the correct white license plate. When a witness appears at the police station with that correct license plate number, uh, they, he is thrown in jail. He is warned to shut up, basically. Luckily, there are some newspaper men who catch wind of this. They report this to the district attorney. The case blows wide open, and Charles Becker the police lieutenant is the first cop executed for murder in, in the United States history. It takes three jolts of electricity to finish the job. It turns out that Big Tim Sullivan uh, was not quite the protector of Herman Rosenthal as Rosenthal thought at all. And in fact, uh, Sullivan had been involved in the murder. They sort of had to cover that up. Tammany decided to pull, cover that up. They put Becker as the fall guy, uh, not that he was not guilty. Uh, but the, the way that District Attorney Whitman uh, got this prosecution is fascinating. And it involves the subordination of witnesses and false testimony. And, and he had, he, quote, had to do this because one could not convict a murderer uh, solely on the testimony of accomplices. And everything else was lacking in this case. 
even though there were a number of accomplices who were willing uh, to uh, throw him throw him under, but it was not enough under New York state law to do this. So it's a fascinating case of, I guess, rough justice being done to Becker. But in the wake of this, it collapses the system of police corruption as it had operated previously and the gambling houses as it had operated previously. And while Rosenthal ends up dead and Tim Sullivan actually ends up dead under very, very suspicious circumstances, uh, Arnold Rothstein's career only continues to rise as things become less crude and more sophisticated and they need a guy to tie this stuff together in a much more safe and neat package. So the execution of Charles Becker leads to the closing of police-protected gambling houses in New York City, which in turn opens the door for Arnold Rothstein and his floating crap games, right? Yes, also also to that. And, and even that can be a dangerous thing. I mean, you, you can't assume that because things are wide open, things are always safe. Um, and, you know, carrying that amount of money around in those days when you're only five foot seven. Okay. Uh, and Arnold Rossi would, would, would be carrying a gun. Now, one of, one of the interesting sidelights to all this is, is gun control. The first gun control in America is the Sullivan Act named after Mr. Reputable himself, Big Tim Sullivan, when he was a state senator in, in New York. Uh, state. Now, the reason for this is the politicians in the Lower East Side, and I guess elsewhere, would hire uh, goons to assist them on election day. But these goons would become big, too big for their britches. One of the ways to control them was to arrest them for illegal possession of firearms. But first, you have to make the firearms illegal. Hence the Sullivan Act. And this was really enacted so they could they could put the arm on, on some of their former goons and how the goons would react is is uh, interesting because they first off, they would they they might not carry a weapon with them and hire some lesser goon to follow like 20 steps behind carrying their weapon. But in that case, the police being so crooked, what they would do is they would plant a weapon. And some of these guns were very small, very, very small, almost Derringer-like. They would plant a weapon on uh, the gangster that they were trying to set up. So these gangsters would walk around the street with their pockets sewed shut. I mean, it's, it's almost like some Mel Brooks comedy. Uh, but that's, that's how topsy-turvy these things could be. But Rothstein, for example, could be robbed on the street. And there's a there's a case uh, where he thinks he's being robbed. And I think it's the St. Francis Hotel on West 46th Street. And he hears the door being broken in from from the corridor. And he assumes that it's yet it's another robbery. What he does because he's carrying a gun at this point he can he's got a permit he can do it legally is he fires three shots through the door and he wings like two or three cops it's not the 
It's not he's being robbed. It's the police are raiding him. But he possesses enough connections at this point to not only beat the rap, because all of a sudden, just like in the 1919 World Series, witnesses will disappear. And he beats the rap. And the fellows who are trying to prosecute him, they end up being persecuted in their department and being, you know, set upon by the authorities. So even and this is in the teens. This is not in the 20s. So very early on, you see his connections at work and you see phenomenal miscarriages of justice. In one instance, you write about Rothstein is being robbed, but his first instinct is not to protect himself, but to protect his bankroll instead. Right. There, there had been a series of uh, robberies of these high-stake games elsewhere in the city beforehand. And by coincidence, there was this one gambler who happened to be at maybe all of them. When the robbers burst in, again, we were discussing earlier Rothstein's amazingly quick reactions. And in like a second or two, he sizes everything up. And what he does is he kicks his bankroll somehow under the carpet. I think it was about $20,000. Uh, he still loses, I think, about $6,000 in that, in that situation. And he fixes his eyes, locks eyes with the guy who he's determined is the, the rat who has tipped off the robbers. So he cannot tip off the robbers now to where the bankroll is. Uh, so again, Rothstein's quick reactions, both physically and mentally. There's this, there's another story where he was in, Rothstein is in a hotel, a hotel, I think, dining room. And the lights go off in the room. Now, Rothstein doesn't know if maybe his lights are going to go off. You know, maybe there's a gunman and a, a shot will be fired and in the darkness and he'll be dead. So the lights come on a few seconds later and all of a sudden Rothstein is, is, is sitting quietly and calmly at another table when the lights go on on the other side of the room. How he has made his way across the room in the dark so quickly and so alertly just confounds people, but that's what he's capable of. There are so many wild stories like this in this book that we won't be able to cover today, and and I want to make sure we cover the big ones. So let's go to the famous fix of the 1919 World Series. There have been many books and movies about the scandal, and, and part of what you do in your book is try to separate the myth from the fact. Could you briefly summarize the scandal what you learned in your research about Arnold Rothstein's involvement? Well, first off, there's a fair amount of gambling on baseball before the fix. And they're fixing of games beyond that. So that it's not unprecedented. And a lot of the gambling revolves around that New York Giants club. It's a very suspicious operation. Uh, and, and you see a lot of suspicious characters on that team. It's, it's not good. So when the opportunity arises to fix the series, there are a couple of groups which are on the case. Now, years before doing my book on Rothstein, I had read Elliot Asinoff's Eight Men Out and seen the movie. 
based on it. Now, it's a wonderfully written book. It's a great book, and it's incredibly detailed. So when I started my book, I thought, well, I shall rely upon Asanoff as the cornerstone for the book. But the deeper I looked at it, it appeared that less and less of his explanation of the fix actually made sense. So he has it where Rothstein is involved in one leg of the fix, but not the other. But in fact, it makes sense that Rothstein is involved in both. And it is, it is such a complex story because people are double-crossing themselves over and over again. It starts, of course, with the Black Sox double. Well, I suppose some might say that it starts with Charles Comiskey double-crossing his players by being so cheap to them. But then it certainly continues on with the Black Sox cheating, not only Comiskey, but cheating their fellow players, cheating their fans, cheating the game. And, and it moves on from there. But also the gamblers cheating the other gamblers who are the direct go-betweens with the Black Sox. And Rothstein, by having two elements or two groups of gamblers approaching the Black Sox, can dangle two pots of money in front of them. And these pots are so big that even if they don't pay off, the, the ball players are never fully paid off, but their greed keeps them on the hook to throw the series. And then Rothstein and Abe Attell. Abe Attell is the little champ. He's a longtime associate of Arnold Rothstein. Uh, they go back together to Saratoga racetrack days very early on, is, is one of the fixers. And then how Rothstein manipulates Attell and the other gamblers to keep them silent, to keep the confessions from being used in the grand jury and in the trial of, of the Black Sox. Really, the fix of the trial and of the justice system is as fascinating as the fix of the ball games. And it indicates again how rotten the justice system is and how quickly Arnold Rothstein can put together a fix. Now he knows New York. He rarely goes out of New York. It, that's an, it, unless he goes to Saratoga he or maybe to the racetrack in Maryland that he owns. He doesn't travel out of the city very much at all. And when he goes to Saratoga, he says, I just want to get the hell out of here and back to, to New York City. But he's able to put together a fix, you know, halfway across a continent and manipulate the legal system there. And probably in conjunction with, uh, with Comiskey and, and people of that nature. So he's incredibly, incredibly resourceful and able to size up situations and profit from them almost instantly. One of the interesting things about the series is, um, you know, this is a post-war series, okay? Baseball is one of those things affected by World War I. A lot of the ball players are drafted, of course. Well, not of course. I mean, we, we didn't see much of that in Vietnam. We saw 
Nolan Ryan going into the reserves quite a bit. Uh, but we didn't see a lot of ball players uh, leaving for the Army. In World War I, you did. Ty Cobb, for example, uh, served in, in a poison gas unit, <laughs> which was going over to the, to the Western Front. Um, but the baseball season was severely curtailed, okay, uh, down to 140 games in 1918. The salaries were cut down, which caused them the ball crooked ball players to become greedier. But also, what gets shut down in regard to uh, World War One is the racetracks. The racetracks are really determined or to be non-essential industries. And also, there had been anti-vice uh, moves in the progressive era to shut down prostitution prohibition, for example, of alcoholic beverages. In New York for a while, the racetracks were shut down under Governor Hughes, Charles Evans Hughes, who later goes on to the Supreme Court of the United States. But where am I going with this? When you shut down the racetracks, it's not like these patriotic gamblers are going to suddenly enlist in the army. No, what they're going to do is hang around the, the ballparks all day. And the ballparks, I, I, I certainly mean all day, because there's no night baseball. There's no night baseball. There's no night horse racing. So this is where they hang out all day. And they are approaching the ballplayers more and more and more. So you're going to see that increase in crookedness burst forth in, in 1919. But it's also because they're trying to make up for the money they've lost during the, the war it's an unusual World Series. It's a nine-game World Series. It's not a seven-game World Series. So everything is sort of different back then. Back after a few brief messages. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis, and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws, I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. 
On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned for the final time. You earlier alluded to Rothstein's infamous poker game. Can you give us the details on that? Why, yes, I can. Uh, As I said, Rothstein's luck is changing in 1928. And in September or October of that year, he goes to, oh, it's almost like the the World Series of, of poker. There are some guys, some big East Coast gamblers like the Boston Brothers, uh, or Lower East Side natives, but they, uh, well, actually they were born in Boston. They're the Solomon Brothers. There's an upstate gambler named Red Martin Bow, And then there are a couple of very big West Coast gamblers who come over. Um, a fellow named, um, well, he's called Nate Raymond. And he's been busy actually fixing Pacific Coast League games. So he comes in, and there's a fellow named Titanic Thompson, very fascinating figure, one of the great gamblers of that time, and also one of the great golfers, maybe not a professional golfer in the sense of the PGA, but a professional golfer in terms of cleaning up on the links with with various suckers. He's a great, great uh, golfer and gambler. So all these guys are gambling with Arnold Rothstein. Another gambler at the table is a guy named George McManus. George McManus has actually set up the game. Rothstein, they play for hours and hours on end for almost a couple days. Rothstein loses about $300,000. He has hands good enough to win and never quite does on a consistent basis he comes to the conclusion that the game is fixed and refuses to pay i mean it's not just a question of being a slow pay but he says i'm not paying george mcmanus is in the uh, etiquette of the day of the milieu uh responsible that the people pay up So he gets angrier and angrier. Nate Raymond is angry. Other people have winnings. They're not paid. 
and Rothstein is telling people the game was fixed. I'm not going to pay. He tells uh, Damon Runyon this repeatedly. And people like Runyon and Nikki Arnstein, if people who remember the, the movie, Funny Girl, Nikki Arnstein is the near-do husband of Fanny Bryce, uh, Barbara Streisand, uh, and also a, a close friend of Arnold Rothstein. He's one of the few people who have anything good to say about Arnold uh, after Arnold's demise. Advise him to pay, but Arnold won't pay. So Arnold is in early November at his usual haunt at Lindy's Delicatessen on Broadway. He receives a call from room 349 of the Park Central Hotel, which is just around the corner from Carnegie Hall. It's kind of a nice, nice area to come and talk with George McManus. Rothstein figures it's safe enough for him to deposit his pearl-handled revolver with Jimmy Meehan, who had been running, who had the apartment where the game had taken place. So he goes unarmed and alone to this meeting with George McManus. Not long afterwards, people in the basement of the hotel see a man coming at them and he's wounded seriously. And that is Arnold Rothstein, who is taken to the polyclinic hospital nearby and refuses to name who shot him. Eventually, it is determined by the police in an incredibly sluggish investigation that the room was occupied by McManus, and he is arrested several weeks after the murder. His apartment is not searched for, I think, a week or two after the murder. They are unable to come up with direct evidence against uh, McManus. But the entire investigation is suspect. He is let off on bail, for example, long before one of the witnesses is. And this witness eventually changes her testimony regarding his presence uh, in the vicinity that night. And then after she does change her testimony, she is given a job in a city hospital. So the thing stinks to high heaven. And probably it stinks because... The McManus family is not just a gambling family, and it is, but it is more so a New York City police family. The McManuses uh, have connections to law enforcement, and it is most likely that one of the reasons why Rothstein goes unarmed to this meeting with a very drunk and angry George McManus is that he thinks he's safe, and because one of the McManus brothers who had been a cop was going to be there. One of them lives in the hotel. And so it's it's a cover-up of gambling. It's a cover-up of Arnold Rothstein's connections to Tammany. And it's a, it's a, it's a police protecting themselves cover-up. All these things go on. But as the investigation dies down, something just as in the case of... of Anthony Weiner's laptop, something magically appears in an unrelated way, which blows everything up. And that occurs when there's a holdup in the Bronx of a testimony for a Bronx 
of a, of a Tammany judge named Albert Vitale. It's again very suspicious, uh, and it's a setup job to get to uncover a payment for a murder of another gangster. It's very complex. But Vitale had received a loan from Arnold Rothstein, and this stunk to high heaven because loans from gamblers, you know, tended to be really payoffs. This sets off the entire investigation of Mayor James of the of first off of the magistrate or judicial system of the city of New York, which then bleeds into investigating the police who have not entirely reformed themselves since uh, the Becker case and have had wonderful opportunities for cash payments thanks to prohibition. And of course, continuing uh, with prostitution and things of that nature. Uh, and then goes into the office holders themselves uh, all the way up to Mayor James J. Walker. The investigation of Mayor Walker threatens to upend the not presidential nomination of Governor Franklin D. Roosevelt. But as it turns out, Roosevelt finally uh, conducts himself with great aplomb and skill in the final stages of this investigation. And then Walker loses his nerve, resigns, and uh, removes the final barrier, really, to the uh, election of Franklin Roosevelt to president in 1932. He was probably going to win anyway, but that certainly made it a lot easier. And, and the connection to, or Roosevelt's antipathy to doing more with Tammany cor corruption could have, if the balloting had gone on further at the 1932 Democratic Convention in Chicago, really derailed him. And you would end up with God knows who is the Democratic candidate and no New Deal. You've talked a lot about Rothstein's hobnobbing with crooked cops and politicians, but he rubbed shoulders with plenty of gangsters of the day as well, including Jip the Blood, Monk Eastman, and Legs Diamond. Now, the HBO show Boardwalk Empire presents him as a mentor to Lucky Luciano and Meyer Lansky. Was that an accurate portrayal in your eyes? This book has been optioned three times for film, okay? And while it was under an option, I was contacted by Michael Stuhlberg. And he wanted to talk about, you know, what was in the book. And the guy who held the option to the book said, no, you shouldn't talk to him. So I said to Stuhlberg, I'd be very happy to have lunch with you and we can talk about anything except Arnold Rothstein. And for some reason, he didn't want to talk to me after that. Uh, but I, I don't get HBO, so I've never watched it. And I think I think it probably would be I mean, I don't watch much television, so I think it would probably not be good for me to to watch it, because to tell you the truth, I never found one reference to Rothstein. I mean, you read the book. There's just no connection between him to Atlantic City that I could find, which is not to say it didn't happen, but I never located it. I, I also get very wary about watching um, films about um, motion pictures about historical things because I fear that it will bleed into my uh, consciousness. And I will I will confuse some some fictional thing in a film with with the real facts of research. 
So it's like, have I ever watched uh, um, the Bill Murray movie about Roosevelt? No. <laughs> you know, it's like, no, because I'm afraid some strange factoid will, will pollute my, you know, some, some fictional factoid will pollute my brain some way down the road. I won't remember where that came from, but I'll think it's true. And, and, and counting on these things is so dangerous if you're in this business. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well let me ask you this. Hey, you want to know who the second person to option the film, the book was? Sure. Ben Stiller. Wow. How long ago was that? Oh, good. Ten years ago. I, you know, I think they option these things, you know, like buying sticker, but stickers bars in the store or something because the option price, you know, unless it's a major bestseller is fairly low, you know, because the option is just a percentage of what they're going to pay. Okay. And, uh, so they probably option a bunch of these things with regularity and, and he decided, well, I can't, you know, I'm Ben Stiller. I can make millions of dollars just being Ben Stiller. But I think I think he could have played Rothstein. He's about the right physical type. He's he's about the right size. You know, he's not a big guy. And he's probably close to the right age now to play Rothstein. Rothstein in his final years anyway. <laughs> he's the right, you know, he's he, he'd be fine and everyone says everyone is always surprised when a uh, when a comedian turns out to give a fine dramatic performance and Comedians always give fine, dramatic performances, you know? Yeah. Let me ask you this as a final question. Uh, what influence did Arnold Rothstein have, in your opinion, on the organized crime that followed him? Organized crime before Arnold Rothstein is, is really a bunch of low-level thugs. It's sort of like unorganized crime. There are gang gangs but they're, they're really almost ad hoc and they're based solely on muscle. But with Rothstein and also with the times, it's a confluence of personalities and the times, the personality of Rothstein and then the personality of the little Rothstein, Meyer Lansky and people of that nature. And well, even the Capones, the bootleggers and the rum runners, because you have prohibition making that line of endeavor more profitable, more widespread. And also the rise, which we don't think of it, but the rise of unions. Okay. You can't have labor racketeering without organized labor. And with the area just below Times Square and all the speakeasies and all that, being the garment district, or at least the garment district at that time, there's no level of manufacturing there now. But at one time, it was absolutely immense. Uh, then you get these guys uh, moving into that as well. And he is involved in both of those endeavors and, of course, the drug trade where he's importing the stuff from Europe, he's importing the stuff from Asia, he's got people all around him involved in this stuff. There's raids of like, at the wake of his death, of $4 million in drugs, big money at that time, because we don't think of this. 
you know, we think of, of 1929, 1930s, uh, that era as being, you know, Elliot Ness and the Untouchables and it's all booze and, you know, smashing liquor bottles when they raid the 21 Club or something like that. So he's got a big chunk of the drug trade and he and he's facilitating that. So in these this this sort of major triad of the future of organized crime, but also the connection of organized crime to politics, because one guy who often gets lost in the shuffle, in the shuffle of, of discussing, you know, Lansky and Siegel and Luciano is Frank Costello. And Frank Costello is a big guy in the 1950s. And he is, he takes up the aspect of, of Rothstein in, re, in dealing with the New York City politicians and then, of course, around the country from there. And Costello had also known Arnold Rothstein. So where can people find out more about you and your work? Well, we have a website. It's www.davidpetrusha, P-I-E-T-R-U-S-Z-A dot com. Um, and uh, if you have trouble spelling the name, I always tell people, don't worry about spelling the name. Go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble and type in 1920, 1932, or type in Rothstein, and it will come up fairly quickly. That's the name of the book, and and go on from there. Um, we um, tend to do some some television uh, from uh, occasionally on C-SPAN. We tend to do uh, a lot more of the presidential stuff now, but the Rothstein story remains fascinating. And I think that the book is also really a very interesting and informative study about how New York City politics work. And, you know, one thing we really hadn't even discussed, because there is so much about him, it's just crazy what's it. One of the things I do when I put together a book very early on, is to compile a chronology. I find it essential to keep the data in order before it, it, fi it finally goes on the page. And as I was putting together the chronology for Rothstein and seeing that he might be doing a fix at the same time he was importing drugs or that he was doing this or, or, or fencing stolen goods, or stolen Liberty bonds or financing a Broadway show, etc. Like AB's Irish Rose, the biggest, the biggest hit of the 1920s and the longest running show for decades afterwards. He does that. Or he does the he bankrolls the show uh, keep shuffling. The Oregon College Savings Plan can help you support your kids' future career as a teacher. A uh, airplane driver? Um, no, their career as a hairstyle designer. As a dinosaur doctor? Oh, their future job as a windmill builder. No, an ice cream taster. You know what? We just don't know what they want to be yet. But while they figure it out and dream big, we're here to help you save for what comes next, whatever that may be. Learn more at OregonCollegeSavings.com. 
The Oregon College Savings Plan can help you support your kid's future career as a teacher. Uh, airplane driver? Um, no, their career as a hairstyle designer. As a dinosaur doctor? Oh, their future job as a windmill builder. No, an ice cream taster. You know what? We just don't know what they want to be yet. But while they figure it out and dream big, we're here to help you save for what comes next, whatever that may be. Learn more at OregonCollegeSavings.com. The, the follow-up to Shuffle Along, the, the uh, historic Black show. Or he finances a couple theaters in Chicago. Or the uh, Selwyn Brothers Theater, which is now the American Airlines Theater on 42nd Street in Manhattan. This is amazing. He's doing all these things at once and then having pieces of nightclubs in Harlem, in Times Square. This is mind-boggling how the man's brain does not explode from all the pressure that is on him. It is just stupefying. He is, he is an incredible, incredible figure. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.